Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This episode 450 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Matthew Martinez and TJ Butino of Hello Penguin Team and ask them about the design and development of their action-adventure RPG, Vernal Edge. A game created by Game Maker or In-Game Maker, which is a very high-level game development tool, principally anchored around 2D games, but somehow... Hello Penguin team managed to get 3D animation out of it too. We talk about that and many other aspects of Vernal Edge, which is very much combat-heavy action-adventure game. Not a destruction in this one. It's not a bad thing, but it's beautifully rendered. And it ostensibly looks like a Mega Drive Stoke SNES or SNES game, if you like. But you poke a little at bit at it. It's more like more like a 2D 32-bit game from the Sega Saturn and indeed PlayStation 1 era. But that aside, why Vernal Edge? Why is it being featured on this show? I encountered it at PAX East. It's another PAX East game and there's going to be a few of those over the next uh, few weeks because I've managed to reconnect with a lot of developers over recent months or at least the time I recorded this podcast. 
So yeah, there's going to be a lot of that. And that's why I go to these events to actually interview developers and, and talk to them about the games they're demoing. And now they're actually being released. At the time I went to Paxi's, Boda Wedge had been out. I was unaware of it. Thankfully, I am now. And so will you be if you listen on. So let's listen to me from the relatively recent past talk to Matt and TJ about the creation of Vernal Edge. Chris, take it away. Matt and TJ, hello. Yeah, hello. Matt, could you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, sure. Just very briefly, um, I'm an artist uh, and game designer. Um, I do a couple of different things. I'm particularly uh, specialized in doing uh, pixel art stuff, so character animations, uh, environment art. Uh, and in game design, um, for the project I worked on, I did a large amount of level design and sort of uh, scoped out the initial vision of the project. And TJ, what what do you do, sir? Hello, I am also an artist and game designer. Um, most of my focus is on uh, concept art, character design, um, level design, and 3D modeling. Um, also, I do a bit of texture work. I, I just kind of do a lot of everything. Um, I'm not as specialized as Matt is, um, more of a, a jack of all, except for uh, the more technical side of like art things, like a um, like, like visual programming and stuff. Okay, okay. Uh, I I tend to just focus on like uh, stuff that needs to get done, like uh, like promo artwork or uh, in-game portraits, or uh, like other things. Um, I also did a fair bit of writing for the game. Uh, I didn't write the main premise. That was Matt and uh, his partner Alex. Um, but I did do a large chunk of the uh, in-game dialogue for all of the characters and like, uh, like setting stuff. Okay, well, we'll be delving deep into that later. Sure. For now, <clears throat> more about yourselves. Matt, how did you make your start making video games? Um, In 2010, I started doing uh, mods for Cave Story uh, instead of my work in high school. Um, and, I le- and I started um, getting really involved in making uh, custom art assets for that getting into making custom levels, like trying to make game scope stuff that was all awful. And the, uh, I guess it just didn't stop from there. Kept scaling up. So twiddling around with something else and you go, Ooh, I could, I could do this for reals. And I'll feel when. Yeah, exactly. Not an uncommon response to this question. What about you, TJ? When did you first make your start making video games? Um, my background's a bit different, actually. Um, I started doing uh, a webcomic, actually. Um, I, I was more of like a writer webcomic kind of person uh, around the same time that Matt was doing like uh, mods and stuff. Uh, and one day... Uh, a friend approached me with a project that they were working on that was not admittedly not very good and they were like how do I make this better and I it, I don't know why they trusted me to think about it but 
I thought about it a lot, and it just I, it just didn't go away, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I was like, wait, am I good at this? And then I tried a few times, uh, helping a few other friends with their projects. Um, and I don't know if I'm good at it yet, but I can. I, I'm definitely having fun. So uh, that's that's my background. Okay. Now this next question, you can. Uh, it's a bit nebulous. But I think it's important to ask because you're creators of things. As such, this is something that I like to think is true and real and, and exists. So, Matt, what do you believe are your biggest influences? Oh, um, just six gen, six gen video games. Um, Could you expand a, on that so people thing. understand yeah. what we so mean? I guess people who don't know what that means, six gen. Um, that that's GameCube, PlayStation Two, X, original Xbox titles. There is um, it's an era where we were sort of at the height of what we could do without um, programmable shaders, uh, and where artistic intent was the strongest inside of video games. Um, we cite games like Double May Cry and Kingdom Hearts Two a lot when we talk about our uh, inspirations for Vernal Edge, the game we're Mm -hmm. talking about today. And it's, um, it's just a very interesting period where we have very experimental, but high quality games. So Mm -hmm. that tends to be where I look back to a lot uh, when looking for uh, inspiration and direction. You're right. There were some incredibly complex and deep titles that arrived in the early 2000s and late 1990s. Because it's like, all of a sudden, there's a turning point, there's a tipping point, where the technology was available to more people than was previous. And then it started to, all these, yes, they weren't as pretty as they are now. It's true. But nonetheless, there was a core to them that just showed what, they suddenly realised what was really possible with this medium. Yeah, mm-hmm. we were definitely getting over a big technical hurdle, and we got a lot of experimental titles as a result. There are a lot of um, instances where I would argue that I think that uh, fifth and sixth gen video games actually look better than a lot of uh, current day, like AAA titles, um, just because they uh, focus less on the technical aspect of how you can achieve like visuals, and more just on making really good art. And really good environments and really good like uh, concepts and ideas that are just like expressed through uh, like the limitations that they had at the time, and they weren't really big limitations, um, but they hmm. were. I, I mean, I'm sure they felt like they were big limitations at the time, though. Uh, so, like, I, I can see how, like, uh, if if I was a developer at the time. In like 2002, uh, I could imagine looking at the technology of like a GameCube and being like, "Why is this terrible? Why, why, why isn't this better? I want to do more than this." But uh, nowadays, I, I look at the hardware that we have right now, and I look at those limitations as like a part of the art style that is enjoyable. And it's like, I want to do that. I want to do that on purpose. And are you mirroring TJ the, the what what Matt said about your inspiration or your inspiration or influences? Was that similar, or have you got something else to draw upon? 
I'd say it's very similar. Um, I'm definitely more preferential towards fifth gen than I am sixth. Um, I'm a big fan of the Nintendo 64. Um, in terms of visual style, I, I feel like there aren't a lot of good examples of the best that the N64 can do, uh, besides like uh, the Zelda titles that were released on the system. Um, but uh, there, I think that there's a lot to explore there in that in that like limitation space or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm gonna try to do that with like some future projects that I'm working on as well. Now, next question. Here we go. Matt, what video game developer do you admire most and why? Oh, that I feel like I change that every five minutes. Um, working on Vernal Edge specifically, um, Cognac was a developer I really looked up to um, who made um, Iconoclasts. Um, I still think he's like, the best pixel artist around currently um, for his integration of like very cool stylish art uh, that still reads in a sort of arcadey sense um, and it has like a style all his own so I'd say that in that sort of department I really look up to him okay nice answer what about you TJ who's the person you point to and say you there carry on doing what you're doing uh, th- this might be more of a basic take, but um, I'm a big fan of Yoshiaki Koizumi. Uh, he is one of the uh, general producers at Nintendo. Uh, I think right now his main thing is he he's on the board of directors and he works on works on Mario games most of the time. But uh, his work on the Zelda series is probably my favorite part of his like uh tenure or career or whatever. Um. I really like the stuff that he's worked on for specifically uh, Link's Awakening and Majora's Mask. Um, like his writing influence in those games and like the uh, the influence they had on, on the direction that they took in development is uh, really, it's just really interesting to like look at as like a, an unfolding process. I'm not, I'm not sure how to describe it. It's like, you, you, I'm I'm like a writer at heart, so I look at the developers who write the best, and I'm like that guy. I like him. Um, but uh, aside from him, I think Valve is a big influence in terms of like the way that like a uh, pacing and structure of games. Uh, I think is very nice and good. It, not citing any particular developers, they just kind of like work collectively very well together. Yeah. Um, the yeah. Whoever wrote Portal 2 is a genius, I think. You know, I, I don't uh, a lot of my influences are not really uh the same as what Matt's would be because uh, like I'm I'm just kind of like an auxiliary artist on Vernal Edge, so it, uh my influences are not really affecting the game mm-hmm. as much uh other than the way that it looks visually. Um but like the direction of the game is definitely uh more something that like is driven by Matt and his influences. Right then, let's move on to the last question of the first half, which is, Matt, what are you playing right now? Right now? Mm -hmm. Let's see. I know uh, the Rising update just came out, uh, and I was enjoying playing that a bit. 
Uh, and I've been revisiting Sekiro. Uh, just just to storm through the game again, actually knowing how to parry this time. <laughs> very very big power trip. Uh, <laughs> and I'm always. I'm always stuck returning to Final Fantasy XIV so I can uh, play something twitchy and turn my brain off and ignore all the progression systems. Yeah, min-maxing is no fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like to uh, perform yeah, well, but I-, I don't like to engage in the grind. Yeah. Like, I just like to fight a random boss fight, please. I don't want to worry about a, a weekly currency. <laughs> yeah. What about you, TJ? What do you do? What's distracting you at the moment? Uh, I think at the time of recording, uh, I just spent a week, uh, playing through all of Tears of the Kingdom that just came out. The, wow! The new Zelda game. You finished it. Uh, I did. Yes. Um. Eh, mixed reception from me. I I'd say seven out of ten. Without Interesting. going into detail. No, that's fair, because it's still very young as a game and a time of recording. Yeah. I mean, this I'm sure that people listening to this in the future will also uh, it'll still be pretty new. We could turn it into an entire Zelda podcast full of bickering and fighting. And... Yeah, I'd rather not do that. <laughs> yeah. that's the, um, I mean, I, I was waiting for the Z game to arrive, so thank you for that, TJ. Yeah. Sorry, I also Z, play, Z games. I, yeah. <laughs> I also play uh, Splatoon 3. Uh, religiously, like every day, so nice. And why is that? What draws you to the to it? Uh, it, it to me, it just feels like fast paced TF two with no hit scan, and that's amazing. Okay. Um, I like the 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 build and spend aspect of the game in a multiplayer setting. Uh, I like. It's it's one of the most balanced uh, team-based shooters, even if you want to... I don't know if you would categorize it as a team-based shooter, but it is one. Uh, it is team-based, and you do shoot things. So, okay. Well, at least they haven't got any hats. Anyway. Nah, they got, they they got do have hats, hats, shirts, and pants. There you go. Or shoes, was, not pants. Uh, yeah, on to a winner. So let's move on. Thanks for that. Let's move on to the second half of the show, where we're going to be delving deep into Infernal Edge.
So, before we do that, I'm going to have to ask you two to have a go at this. Can you tell us what is Vernal Edge? Oh, uh, Vernal Edge is a Metroidvania that pulls its combat design from character action games, uh, as people like to call them, such as Devil May Cry or Kingdom Hearts 2. You play as Vernal, who is a short, angry, and illiterate woman um, out to look for her deadbeat dad, uh, who is somewhere along a series of floating islands in the sky. Uh, It's a Metroidvania, very fantastical world, uh, with a lot of very deep combat elements to play with. And you get to fly around a big 3D airship in a cool, low-poly overworld. You do indeed. Like we'll come. We'll come to that later. I've, I've got questions. Questions, um, and they've done a fantastic job of describing uh, the uh, Vernal. Uh, she is. She's angry, isn't she? She's got issues. She's, mm-hmm. she, you know. Yeah. Needs therapy. No more than no. Hug ain't gonna do it. <laughs> she she needs stuff to work out. But. Yes, she does. Uh, I think open, uh, uh, you know, her uh, landing at the beginning from the hijacking. Or, or no, she wasn't hijacking. No, far from it. She was staying um, away. Staying away, and they found her, and then they threw her off, and it all, it all went south from there. But um, you talked about the combat. Now we're going to focus on that now for, I think maybe two next couple of questions because it's very important. But it is everyone um, split into two core components is the side sort of side scrolling sort of a 2d beautifully rendered wonderfully animated amazing lighting and shading effects everything is what needs to be seen is there and there's not too much distractions it's quite exceptional so well done for that thank you it really pops out of the really works well with the uh, steam deck as well he pops out the screen on that machine so it's great I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Steam Deck. Uh, uh, we haven't heard a lot of uh, people giving us like direct feedback from uh, use on the Steam Deck. I know that there's one problem. It, that's the uh, FPS limiter. You should probably yeah. turn that off if that's on. Playing <laughs> a pixel game, you don't need it. No. no yeah. Um, the game was designed to run it at 60 FPS. You're, you should be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's just, you know, it's, it's a great machine. I just like, I play a lot of... I think playing games like this on that is really it's more more engrossed because you, it's just you and the screen. Uh, yeah. Whereas oh, yeah. Yeah. whereas on largest like platforms on my PC and stuff, it's just um, not as intimate, so to speak. Now, I want to talk about space, space in terms of Vernal Wedge, not space generally. So the outer space, space, yeah, no. <laughs> the outer, <laughs> not outer space, but the space. Which so this is like a design question in terms of the player occupies a very definite sort of like defined space. Of course they do, and mm-hmm. but it's quite small. There's a lot of things going on that it does scale a bit. I grant you that, but mainly it's it's actually quite small. It does afford the player a reasonable arena to move around in. They've got. Places to be, they can be in places that initially are dangerous, and then they can jump in before the, where they cease to be. They can, you know, prop themselves or slot themselves in a place where they're, you know, safe, and then carry out attacks or what have you. How have you found designing the space in which the player is 
and making sure that they are challenged, of course, they're not always placed under threat, but not to the point where it becomes frustrating and unfair. How have you found designing those spaces, knowing that as they progress, things get more and more difficult? So the screen space was probably the most difficult thing to work around in those regards. Um, A lot of the tools that we provide you to move quickly kind of come with the prerequisite that you already know what's going ahead of you. Um, For designing combat encounters, uh, we pace the game a little bit uh, slower than average because you have uh, the entire screen to keep track of. And usually uh, encounters where the um, playable area is larger than the actual size of the screen tend to be easier since you can uh, run away from characters more. So we tend to think more about what we can fit on one screen comfortably. Designing platforming challenges, especially the uh, distance between um, like things to jump on or small objectives in an encounter like that need to sort of give you enough space to interact with it, but also more than enough space to see what's coming up. So sometimes you play with like, oh, let's separate these objects to try and get more of a reactive uh, sort of gameplay loop where we're testing how quickly people can respond to information that wasn't on screen before. Or if it's more difficult or complicated, we'll try to keep the elements a bit more condensed so people can look and sort of form a plan of action before going at it. And it's definitely difficult. Uh, I don't think we nailed it 100% of the time, because uh, this was the first game of this scale. But that those are sort of the big facets we were thinking of when it came to managing the gameplay space uh, for mm-hmm. like all this all this stuff you can do. Uh, there's also a very large emphasis on uh, making platforming feel like a playground. Uh, so that whenever players get uh, progressive upgrades in the game, they can use them pretty much anywhere in a lot of different and creative ways. Um, one notable one is uh, this is this is fine to spoil, I guess. Um, in in the game, there's a progressive upgrade that gives you like a ground pound that lets you slide on sloped surfaces, um, and uh, like. Uh, a lot of players might notice that elsewhere in the game, like just kind of everywhere, there's a lot of sloped surfaces that kind of lead into other sloped surfaces that you can then jump off of like a, like a half pipe almost. Uh, And that can give you a lot of height that you wouldn't get normally. And there's a lot of stuff in the game that is designed to kind of uh, facilitate like creative and imaginative play with all of the things that you get uh, as you progress through it. I certainly noticed that uh, it um, reminded me of a very old game called Strider. Did things like that. Too. Yeah. Love Strider. Yay. Big, big, big emphasis on um, abilities that make use of the terrain over um, bespoke objects Yeah, or um, things that are terrain independent. Uh, that's why there's no double jump in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Next uh, question. Oh, sorry, TJ. You got something more to say? We move on. It's fine. Oh, sure. Um, like, yeah. There's no double jump in the game because uh, there's a greater emphasis on letting players use the tools that they have in order to gain 
uh, verticality in creative ways. Um, uh, having it just be like a button that you press twice is less creative. Granted. And it makes, doesn't feel like you're doing it. It feels like the it, game just gives you something. Yeah, that makes very little sense. I'm jumping in the air. Right. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the parry in Vernal Edge. It's really powerful and it's really mm. useful. And it changes the dynamic of the combat really you know, astonishing. You just have to deal with it. You have to, you can't ignore it. You know, it's just, uh, it's, without it, you will suffer quite badly. Was it always there? So I guess I'm going to double check because sometimes there's a language difference. Are you referring to the block that yeah. you're taught how to use? Yeah. Okay. Cause there is also a literal parry. Oh, right. There is, there is. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, everyone means different things. So that block, uh, the entire game is sort of designed around it. Um, Kingdom Hearts 2 is an inspiration, and it comes with a block like that in your baseline kit. So that was um, always kind of a part of the design ethos. Mm -hmm. Uh, This sort of balance between dashing, uh, which is a safer defensive option, and uh, blocking, which is uh, actually it can be pretty easy if you know how to use it. But uh, it's one where you have to sort of stand your ground. Um, and a lot of the um, attacks and sort of statistics of picking different options benefit you from choosing options that make you stand your ground. Yeah, I, I just found it really rewarding when I successfully pulled it off. I actually managed to avoid some severe blows by actually judiciously just, you know, stopping the blow from hitting in the first place. Um, <laughs> it's very important. And ever since, you know, uh, I got uh, Demon Souls to thank for that. But anyway, yeah, we have also players that beat the entire game without using it because of uh, the things that they've been trained to do from other games. Yeah, that is very surprising. Yeah, no, I sometimes they say they're having a really hard time. And I'm like, are you blocking? <laughs> they're like, what? Yeah, what yeah. There's, there's, there's a block a, in the game. Yeah, there's a block. Tutorial was for. Yeah, this is a great tutorial, by the way, and I know they're very, very hard to make. So well done for that. A, a lot of them are people who played the game before that tutorial existed, like Kickstarter demos and stuff. Right, right. So, so far, the only people who have had trouble with our tutorial is people who just refuse to read it. <laughs> right. Which, okay. I, I guess you just can't do anything about them. No, so. no. There's only so much one can do. I want to talk about the next aspect because I'm a big explorer in video games. One of the reasons I love playing worlds created by others because I want to see what they've made and see things and explore things and then blow them up. So <laughs> the the yeah. sense of the sense of discovery in Vernal Edge is incredible because the the art and the, the music and everything is such a, a rich environment to be in. It's it's enjoyable to be there. Um, and encourages the player to basically island hop as they see fit. There's no like you can go there, you can go there. You might find it a bit tough, but you can go there if you like, you can go there. And um, my concern about that is that there's not a lot of hand holding in part mm-hmm. of it. Basically, says, I don't know, here's, here's now over the world, you've got this ship now. It's not a spoiler, everyone, it's quite early on in the game, you end up getting a, an airship. And floating between islands and stuff. It's quite amazing. But um you there's no real guidance to that. So you do what do you do to make sure that the player does not feel they don't have any purpose or aim? What do you think 
you did in the structure of Vernal Edge, if for what it's worth, that to make sure that, yes, they're free to do what they wish, but uh, there is a beginning, middle, and end to this. That is a tough question, and uh, we went through a lot of different iterations of uh, how the overworld was laid out um, and how we kind of expect players to approach it. Um, I feel like there's a few things that we could have done better, but uh, all in all, I think that we all agreed that it was best to just kind of like let the player do whatever they, whatever they wanted um, mm-hmm. because uh, it's more fun that way. Uh, I think, I think we have more fun doing that. And like, if there was something like, I don't know, like a big arrow pointing you where, where to go and like, go to this Island. Um, it would probably be a little bit less, uh, like exploratory to just ignore that arrow and go somewhere else. Because then in the back of your mind, you would be like, oh, okay, when I'm done with this, I got to go over there to do the real thing. Um, I think mm-hmm. that there was there was a sense of we'd rather have players find what the story is, like what the goals are themselves. Um, and I think that that is generally a good decision. Mm-hmm. On my end, um, I found that putting like a big marker above um, levels that are core to progression sort of diminishes the explorative sense of going to a new place and finding what's there. Because I think... Um, finding out that a place you're going to is actually a quarter progression is a fun element of discovery uh, that I didn't want to take away. Cause I don't want to have like, Oh, these are, these are the important levels and these are the time wasting levels. Uh, though I don't yeah. really like that dynamic very much. Uh, and we, we definitely turned down a couple of times when we were asked uh, during development to try and make progression uh, more blatant. Yeah. I think that we did in some ways make progression a little blatant, but like in an opposite sense where instead of marking an Island as you need to go here, um, there is a divide in the overworld of islands. You can't go to right away and islands that you can. So it's, it's more of the player seeing those over there and they can't get to them and being like, I want to go there. Mm -hmm. Like we, we make the player want things by doing that instead of, just outright telling them. And I feel like that's a better design philosophy. Like uh, you got to, you got to trick players into thinking that it's their idea. Mm -hmm. But there's also a little bit more, um, I guess when, in terms of actual things we did to help players distinguish um, islands that are quarter progression tend to have a little bit more gravitas narratively to them. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to have like scenes uh, upon entering them that are pushing the story forward. Um, and islands that don't tend to just sort of leave you alone, um, play at very atmospheric tracks, because uh, we're definitely big on sort of letting the player soak things in and think them through. Giving the uh, player or granting the player some intelligence is something that should be encouraged and applauded. And I thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Every time you do it, we'll give you five negative Steam reviews. <laughs> yep. Yeah, people people don't like it when you respect their intelligence for some reason. Very strange. Okay, last question. I want to talk about a visual styling now because that's one of the most incredible things about Vernal Edge. It's like two worlds in one. It definitely feels like um, 
it feels like, like I said, a fifth generation game and a sixth generation console game all mashed into one. Um, so during when you're in the overworld, you the visual styling reminds me of a PS1 game or maybe a Saturn game you know, in terms um, of the texturing and stuff. Or maybe I it's do, an N64, I, I don't know. I do think the Sega Saturn is probably closest um, yeah. to to like the limitations that we were actually forced to deal with because the game is made in Game Maker, right? Um, which which is not known for its 3D capabilities. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of things that we needed to just kind of like get around with fancy trickery, and we can thank our programmer Noxid for that. Um, uh, he definitely made it so that I was able to model the overworld uh, in a very clean looking way. But yeah, uh, you, you might notice that there's very little transparency going on in the overworld. It's all dithered. Yes. Uh, yeah, that is that is a thing that's very notable of the Sega Saturn. Yeah, I thought uh, I was playing Panzer Dragoon at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it just... So that's the answer to my question. There is one in there. It's why? Why was this style adopted? And you just answered it by, well, we had a technical limitation on the engine we were using which is not great for 3D, and we yeah. ended up creating or recreating the strange fog that you find in maybe, you know, Panzer Dragoon Saga, which is a game I do have and play. Um, and it does feel like there's strange fog. It's like, you know, the, the fogginess of... And it's just so unusual to see. I mean, yes, it doesn't have the warping textures of the PlayStation 1, which now people find charming, but mm-hmm. it, it did feel... just It was a wonderful... It moves so well. And it just wasn't jarring at all. It was quite welcoming to see because it it had this symbiosis with the two D action and you floating up and it it goes at quite a pace. This this in the island sort of loom up on you very quickly. It's, it's, why did you sort of like do it? That why was it so fast and fluid? And I mean, did, what, how did you sort of design the spacing of of the islands and while adopting this sort of three D sort of like representation of them? Well, we um, fought. We fought about it with each other a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is here. No, this needs to block this. No, this shouldn't block this. It went through like twenty iterations. Like we can't, we can't let the player look at that when they first come out of this island. There needs to be like uh, this thing over here. They need this island needs to be bigger. That one needs to be big. For a long time, actually, the overworld was going to be more of a like a top down two D thing. Uh, with like a 3D perspective, uh, sort of like a Mode 70 uh, Super Nintendo looking thing. We had hired someone to work on that, but they were either unavailable or, or not willing to, or not able to work on uh, the rest of it. Um, yeah, they were contracted to make the like framework of it, um, yeah. but they weren't really um, going to be available to do anymore. So we were going to kind of pick up from after that. And we just yeah. sort of took that framework uh, and Knox had, like, built on top of it and ripped out half of it and stuff to make what we had now. Yeah. Um, at one point, uh, we were just going to continue and make it, like, a top-down 2D one. But uh, I had some previous, like, uh, 3D modeling and design experience. So I was like, what, what if I just make the whole thing, thing 3D? Uh and everyone looked at me and they were like, you got two months. Why would you choose to do this? And, <laughs> um, we do these things and, because they are hard. <laughs> and, 
yeah. it was it was it was worth it yeah like i it i just made the entire overworld in like two and a half months um using uh, a combination of new textures that i made and also some textures that uh were already in the game that matt had made and i was just like stealing things and like just cobbling together an entire uh overworld map for every single island um the original plan was like major islands would be the ones with actual designs and then minor ones would be like copy pasted ones with like some different colors or something but i was like no i'm gonna make every single one and i had to do this while i was also making the promo artwork for the game like uh all of the the big banners that we have at like different uh, convention events all of the like the character artwork the cover art for the game uh all of the steam images and stuff so uh last summer was not fun for me oh well it's, it was worth every all the efforts it's a fan yes it was fantastic game and i'm so happy to meet you both and to chat about vernal edge sorry if i could mention something about vernal edge that's probably not going to come up any questions no sadly we're done but uh please anything yeah. to add please do add um since we made a really combat focused game uh, and sort of mechanic sets that we like. We ended up making a game that um, is very geared towards people who are mechanically curious, um, which um, is a slightly smaller audience. Uh, it's for people who like to enter a game and sort of of their own volition, look at everything they can do and the environment around them and say like, what does this do? How do these things go together? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess if you're making a game um keep in mind that um sparking people to be that curious uh is difficult it's got to come from them and that in the future um for making our lives a little bit easier we probably try to introduce people to that concept a bit more slowly yeah uh and if you're playing games uh just try just try shit <laughs> <laughs> just, just it is. be more curious um if a game doesn't tell you something it doesn't mean it's bad uh it's trying to give uh it might just be trying to give you the pleasure of figuring it out yourself yeah it, it it's very difficult to juggle the two different mentalities of uh being all in on like a complex combat system and being like yeah i'm gonna kill this guy um versus approaching like a puzzle in a room like there's like a cube you gotta rotate or something um, those two things are very hard to put in the same setting and like get in the same brain space um, because like in order to do that, you'd need to treat both of those things as like the same approach. Like uh, if you're approaching puzzles the same way that you're approaching combat, then all combat is suddenly a puzzle. Um, and that is kind of what we did. Um there's a lot of like build and spend and like kind of trying to figure out how to like uh, not die. <laughs> That's the puzzle. Um, Many people argue street fighter is actually designed that way. And, uh, yeah, that, no, I can see it. I can see that too. Yeah. Um, for me, I'll just take a fist and just smash the buttons. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, it works. Yeah, well, well, it works but, better with soul caliber, isn't it? Really? But anyway, uh, for me, I think Punch Out is actually the best example. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a literal puzzle. Uh, every fight, yeah, and it is a combat system. So, so yes, as I say, so fantastic, Matt. Thanks for adding that point. It's the 
sense of discovery and uh, reward, the reward of, in of itself should not be ignored. So thank you. It, uh, it's been developed by Hello Penguin Games. I have to ask, where does the name come from? <laughs> Take it uh, away, Matt. Hello Penguin was a uh, just a, a shit post game we worked on um, when I was in college. A very, very rudimentary, very basic. Uh, and we made a sequel to it where we sort of pushed ourselves up a little bit. Uh, we made a parody of um, RPGs like Final Fantasy out of the sequel. It is a turn-based JRPG. Yeah. Um, made in Java? <laughs> it's made in Java. You have to hit en- you have to hit end on your keyboard to start the game. It was very funny. It is it is nothing but jokes the entire way through. We printed it's, a zine for it. It was it's like, yeah. It's like one of the first things that Matt showed me when I met him and I was laughing my ass off. It was so good. <laughs> there was um yeah, I guess the culture of making that game uh with the humor and it being uh, sort of everyone knows that it's just sort of meant to be funny. It was very, uh, I guess, creatively opening. Um, I know some members of the dev team miss that uh, environment. So when we had to pick a name for ourselves, that was like, well, this is the only thing we've done. Yeah. And we think the, the drawing of the penguins funny. It's, it's as good as reason as any. I mean, it's either that or... 3 a.m. hunting through Google trying to get a domain name. You don't want that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that would happen though. Oh at yeah. One point. Yeah. If I I'm guess, sure, I'm sure Knox that. Yeah. did that because he. Yeah. Yeah. Verna Wedge is developed by Hello Penguin Games, and it's published by Pit Games, and is available on what platforms? All of them. Steam, <laughs> Switch, Xbox, PlayStation, Epic? Question mark. Uh, Gog. Yeah, and have some physical releases that you can pre-order from Red Art Games. You yeah. can, um, but no, it's a wonderful, wonderful game, and uh, it's been great having you both on. It really has. You've been great guests. Oh, I, uh, I, I do need to issue a correction. Oh, right. It's actually a Hello Penguin team. Oh, apologies. I'm going to make a note of that just to make sure I don't miss that. Hello Penguin team. There you go. Fixed. Okay. So, Hello Penguin team, not Hello Penguin. Get the noise. They uh, and again, okay, the game our, is, Yeah, I think our publisher got that wrong once at at one point. Also, so. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. And <laughs> um, and it's available on all of the things. Yes, currently out there. Love our I mean, publisher. They did that for us. They yes. did. They did a fantastic job. And um, like I said, you've been great, great guests. And you're more than welcome. To come back to talk about yes. what next you're looking at, because sure. we, you know, we'll be here. I'm sure it's three or four years away. I get it, but oh, we'll, yeah. be, we'll be mean, here. Uh, uh, Matt's currently working on something cooking. It's nebulous. It's up in the air. As it's nebulous. <laughs> um, I'm currently working on two projects. Um, one of them is already mid development. It is a 2.5D PlayStation 1 style platformer game inspired by Klonoa, Tomba, and Mischief Makers. Nice. Uh, and it, it is called Double Shake. Okay. Um, 
I'm a concept artist, uh, level designer, uh, basic designer. I'm helping with writing. I'm just doing kind of everything again. I, I just kind of stick my face in whatever I work on like that. Um, well, the, the other project, that, yeah, the on. other project that I'm working on in the future, yes, uh, hopefully with Matt as well, um, is a Nintendo 64 styled JRPG uh, inspired by Paper Mario and also Mother Three, specifically those two. Nice. I'll be looking the indie definitely. RPG combo. The indie RPG. Yeah. I'll be uh, uh, and- definitely looking out for both of those. Yeah, and I'll have more information on that if you just like look me up. I guess I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it's been wonderful having you both on the show, and again, you're welcome to come back. But until then, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. Well. It was fun. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cana Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cana Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canarince.com. 